If you're enjoying Bradbury 100, please check out my other podcast, Science Fiction 101, in which we explore the past, present and future of science fiction. Find it at 101sf.blogspot.com and head over to YouTube to find my Bradbury 101 series, in which I look at Ray's books and movies. This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the life and work of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. This time I have a brand new interview. So we're back to the sort of traditional format of the podcast. Later on in the show I'll be meeting the co-hosts of the Words to Write By podcast. Now, Words to Write By has a subtitle of Improving Our Craft One Book at a Time. So it's all about writing, and the two co-hosts are seeking out instructional books on writing and trying to follow their advice. And I think that's quite a a fascinating piece of research that they're doing. So I'll be talking to the co-hosts of that, Kim and Renee, And the reason I'm going to be talking to them is because one of the books they chose to follow is Ray Bradbury's book, Zen in the Art of Writing. Now, I always like to put things in context, so let's put Zen in the Art of Writing in context. Ray, of course, is best known as a novelist and a short story writer. He also wrote plenty of poetry and lots of essays, and he published a few non-fiction books which were really essay collections. One of the best non-fiction books that he came out with is Zen in the Art of Writing, which mixes together essays on various aspects of creativity as Ray sees it. Some of the essays are about his own books. Actually, they are literally the introductions, the prefaces, the forewords, the afterwords that Ray wrote for his books. Now, they're fascinating, but they're not necessarily instructional in the sense of telling you this is how you should write a book. More, they are an account of how Ray did his writing. But there are some essays in the book which really do get you thinking. Well, the thought that always comes into my mind is, I could have a go at that. So, for example, Ray talks about writing haiku. He talks about word association. He talks about writing down a list of nouns and then using that list of nouns to prompt story ideas. And that one actually is a great one. I've tried that myself when I've had a a wave of creative writing wash over me. And it's a very good way to get started. So Ray is really just recounting what has worked for him, the things he's tried and the things that have been successful. There's no guarantee that if you do follow his advice that you will end up a great writer, but who knows? Now, Zen in the Art of Writing was originally published by a publisher called Joshua O'Dell Editions. It's not a book that came from Ray's mainstream publisher. In today's terms, Ray's mainstream publishers are HarperCollins, or the William Morrow imprint of HarperCollins. But Joshua O'Dell Editions is much more of a small press. Nevertheless, Zen in the Art of Writing went into at least two editions. In fact, when you listen to the interview later on in the show, you will hear my surprise that 
the two co-hosts, Kim and Renee, have different editions of the book. And it's something that took them by surprise as well, that there even were two different editions. What about the title of that book, Zen in the Art of Writing? Where did that come from? Well, Ray was possibly influenced by a very popular book called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. But in fact, there were all sorts of books that began with Zen and or Zen in. They all seem to trace their origins to Eugen Herigl's book, Zen in the Art of Archery. In fact, his first name is probably pronounced Eugen, because he was German. He was a German professor of philosophy in Tokyo, and he took up archery. He did it as a step towards his understanding of Zen Buddhism. That's Herigl's book. That's not Ray's book. Ray's book doesn't really talk much about Zen as a thing. I think he was simply latching on to the fashionable-sounding title, and like the play on words of it. Ray first used that title for just a single essay back in 1973, which was called Zen in the Art of Writing. So that one essay becomes the title essay of the book. And in that essay, Ray begins, I selected the above title, quite obviously, for its shock value. The variety of reactions to it should guarantee me some sort of crowd, if only of curious onlookers, those who come to pity and stay to shout. And then he goes on to say that although this is a bit of a joke, he's not really joking. And then he gives some key words in block capitals. And even if you don't read the entire essay, just look for the key words. And those words, in brief, tell you the Bradbury philosophy on writing. These are the key words. Work. Relaxation. Don't think. Ray would sometimes talk about these things and and use different phrases, different variations on these words. So one phrase that I heard him utter personally once is, get your work done. And to Ray, that was almost the most important thing in life. Get your work done. You can relax, you can have fun, you can play, but you must get your work done. I have to admit, for someone like me, that's a very hard one to implement. Although I have worked very hard all of my life, I don't like it, I much prefer to play. And then, don't think. This is one that I'm pretty sure has come up before on this podcast. And I often explain to people that Ray was not saying, do not use your brain. What he was saying, however was be prepared to switch off your brain during some part of the writing process. He famously had Don't Think on a little sign attached to his typewriter. And if you look back at old documentary films showing Ray doing some of his writing, you can see him typing furiously with that little sign there saying Don't Think. But you can couple that with one of Ray's favourite utterances about writing – which was, and I apologise for the language, it's Bradbury's language, not mine, throw up in the morning, clean up at noon. By which he meant, get the words on the page as fast as you can, without thinking, let the words flood out of you, and then, later on, come back to it and engage the intellect. Look at what you've written, critically, and with the brain, with thought. So, the phrase, don't think, doesn't mean don't ever think. 
It simply means while you're in that blaze of creativity and the words are pouring out, don't let your brain get in the way. So Zen in the Art of Writing is the title essay of the collection. It comes quite near the end of the collection. Uh, I've got in front of me here, this is the Joshua O'Dell edition from 1994. And just leafing through, looking at the various articles in there, there's one called The Joy of Writing, which just begins with two single word sentences, zest and gusto. I don't think either of those words are much in common use nowadays, but I, I can imagine they were in his younger days. And in this essay, The Joy of Writing, Ray talks about the writer who has already learned his trade. So he's not telling you how to get started as a writer. He's kind of addressing you as if you're a colleague of his and you're looking to improve, you're looking to become a better writer. Then comes an essay called Run Fast, Stand Still, or The Thing at the Top of the Stairs, or New Ghosts from Old Minds. And this is where Ray tells pretty much his origin story as a writer uh, of how he wrote a list of nouns or a list of titles that were mostly one word or the something, fill in the blank. And he gives the list, the lake, the night, the crickets, the ravine, the attic, the basement, the trap door the baby, the crowd. Now, some of these you may recognise as actual titles of actual Bradbury stories. So there is one called The Lake. There is one called The Night. I don't think there is one called The Baby, but the minute you see that as a possible title of a Bradbury story, you probably think, ah, The Small Assassin. You know, that story about the baby who tries to murder the parents. So it seems entirely plausible that Bradbury would have just written a list of nouns and then let his imagination run away with him until he got the stories that we're familiar with now. And in that essay, Run Fast, Stand Still, Bradbury goes through several of his quite famous stories and talks about their origins. So that's a, a very interesting chapter for anyone who is interested in where Bradbury gets his ideas. And of course, that's one of the questions that creative writers are always asked. Where do you get your ideas from? A lot of writers are dismissive of that question, but Ray seems very keen to explain. The next chapter is called How to Keep and Feed a Muse. In this one, he's really talking about his subconscious, how to keep the creative ideas flowing. It's not really spelled out in this essay, I don't think, but you do get a sense, perhaps, that here is a writer who might worry that the muse might one day go away. Now, from the biographies of Bradbury, it doesn't seem that he ever really suffered from writer's block, but he did have a fear of that. And part of his belief in freeform writing, of sitting at the typewriter and just letting the words flow out, part of his belief in that came from the thought that if he were to stop and think, the words might stop coming. Elsewhere in the book, you'll find Drunk and in Charge of a Bicycle, where he talks about his childhood experiences, watching Lon Chaney films at the age of three or five or whatever it was. And then you'll get to the essays on the books. So there's one on how he wrote The Martian Chronicles. There's one on how he famously wrote Fahrenheit 451 in the library of UCLA and how he wrote Dandelion Wine. 
So the book is a strange thing, really. It's a mixture of writing advice, autobiography, this is what has worked for me, and maybe you should try it, and just the accumulated life wisdom of somebody who'd been writing at the time this book was published, probably for about 60 years. So Zen in the Art of Writing is an essential book, I think, if you seek to understand Bradbury's writing. Of course, if you've got a big Bradbury collection, some of those essays on how I wrote The Martian Chronicles or how I wrote Fahrenheit 451, some of those will be familiar to you. You've already got them as intros or prefaces or afterwords. But if you don't, if you just have the kind of standard editions that don't have any intros, Zen in the Art of Writing is a good one to look at. Now, on to today's interview. A few months ago, I was contacted out of the blue by some podcasters who were starting a new podcast called Words to Write By, and they were Kim and Renee, the co-hosts, and they explained to me that they were doing this thing where they were taking instruction manuals, advice books on how to be a good writer, and they were following them, seeing if they were any good. They were literally doing the experiment, and I absolutely admire that. The reason they contacted me is because they were planning to work through Zen in the Art of Writing and they wanted to get some background and possibly a little bit of a warning of what they might be letting themselves in for. So I did the interview, I appeared on their podcast and I was very interested to see how they got on. So I followed the podcast, I listened to all the episodes, not just the ones about Bradbury and at the time I did the interview on their show I said I'd love to have you on my podcast after you've finished working through Zen in the Art of Writing, so that I can catch up with you and find out how it went. So let's go to the interview now. This is me talking to Kim and Renee of Words to Write By. So I'm Kim Smuga-Otto. And I'm Renee Nelson. Now, I was curious as to which editions you've got, and you've got different <laughs> different ones, but have they got the same oh, content? No, we actually discovered, we, had an, we, we talked about it on the episode, I'm missing a chapter. Which chapter was it that's missing? It was Shitting Haiku in a Barrel. Uh, it was funny because, you know, I, I, I'm like, well, I'm, I'm reading this and I'm like, oh, okay, I guess I'm done with my homework, right? And she goes, oh, what about the interview? And I'm like, what are you talking about? The haiku in a barrel. And I'm like, what? is she talking about it? Of course, it's like nine o'clock at night. I'm recording in the morning, you know, and I'm like, oh. I wonder how that happened because I I was naively thinking that it was just one edition that had been reprinted. Yeah, I have the, the 90s Jazzercise cover. And what's the copyright date in, in that one? 1990. This one's 1994. So oh. obviously they, they thought they'd add a bit more material in there prior experience of reading Bradbury before you came to this book, what had you read, if anything? We actually made a, a, a survey of this for our listeners. My first Bradbury, I recall being in the public library and pulling the Martian Chronicles off the shelf. And this was back far enough where, you know, there wasn't an internet to check about these things. You read what was on the front of the book and read on the back of the book. And that was all the information you had about what this thing was. And I think it was probably in middle school or early high school. And I, I really didn't know what to expect in reading it. And just seeing these short stories kind of 
expand and how sometimes things change, but sometimes things didn't and the callbacks and then just the whole arc of the story to the the story about about everybody leaving Mars and the the house that was left over from the nuclear accident and then the people coming back to Mars. There are other stories written in that style, but as a middle schooler, I hadn't read any of them before. So it was a, made a big impression on me, just what could be done with writing and what could be done with adult science fiction. I really had no choice, but I read Fahrenheit 451 when I was like, I don't know, a freshman in high school or whatever. Um, And it's cool. You know, it was neat, but you don't really quite understand everything you're reading. Social science fiction, especially from that era, can tend to be a little heavy handed and a lot of like monologuing by characters. And so I'm sure I wasn't paying attention to the whole thing. I guess one could say that was like my first Bradbury, but my real first Bradbury was after high school, I found The Illustrated Man. And damn, that really, it takes a picture of how wild his imagination was (laughs) and how carefully crafted his stories were. And so that short story collection really blew my mind. Since then, I actually, uh, I listened to a radio drama of Dandelion Wine. That guy had quite a range. It's not just crazy science fiction. He he's written wonderful stories that there's no speculative fiction in it at all. It's just a great story like Cora in the Wide World. Mm-hmm. We did an episode on that. And and I think we asked. Yeah, we Phil. asked you for the recommendation. We really loved that story. That was great. Oh, good. Yeah. That was beautiful. There's a, a little reading group online that I'm part of. And we read that story a few weeks ago. Yeah. And people loved it. You should have your reading group watch the movie too, because it's actually quite, we took that challenge uh, at this point because Bradbury claimed that the best film versions of his stories were when somebody took exactly what he written on the page and they put that onto the film. And it was the contrast between the screenplay he wrote for Cora and, and Wide World and the original story are, are quite different. Yeah, that, that advice didn't play out at all. <laughs> Yeah, but they're two. They're actually they're very interesting complementary stories. That the, the the changes he made, and he wrote the screenplay many many years after he'd written the short story. So it's an interesting take on how he softened as he got older. <laughs> and also, of course, the minute you put something on film, you're making things concrete. So um, when you're reading the story, you can picture Cora however you like uh, within the bounds of however he describes her. But the minute you see the film version. It's Tyne Daly, <laughs> and you can't get away from that. But she's amazing. She can be Cora forever. I'm okay with that. <laughs> Absolutely. She's fantastic. One of my favorite actors. Did your group watch the episode too? Quite a few of them did. Did they like it? Yes. But actors bring baggage to a part. Mm. And in some cases, it can be good baggage. It doesn't have to be bad baggage, but it's baggage. But anybody who's watching it who has never seen Tyne Daly before, I think is in for a treat. Actually, I'd never really seen her either. I mean, never seen the original TV stuff. Oh, really? She was recognizable, but I hadn't seen her in a defining role. So she was just Cora for me. Yeah. And it was interesting because I I swear the whole time I was watching this, I'm like, I know this actress. I I can't tell from where, but it was in the background of my childhood, you know, on TV because the TV was on 24 seven. Yeah. That was cool. I got to dig deep into who she was after we saw it because we were so blown away by her performance. So So overall, obviously, you took on this book because you were going to sort of follow the advice that you assumed was in there. (laughs) Can you give us a, a kind of a quick summary of what your overall feelings are about that as an advice book? We've done a couple of different books by this point, and they each have a different way of giving advice or a different idea of what good advice is. And many of them are more prescriptive. 
And this is more of teaching by example. What we got was that Ray Bradbury loved to write. He was so happy he was making a living out of this, and he just threw himself into it each day. And these were the things that he did to make his writing work. And for our podcast, we tackle these writing advice books, but for a writer and probably any artist, actually, there's two ways to go about it. Either it's a process book or it's a technical technique book. So usually it's, you should meditate in the morning or wake up early and start the day. Like, you know, it's writers don't want to write. <laughs> How do you get your, you know, your ideas? So that's a different process. That's, that's process writing. Whereas the stuff where you're like diagramming sentences or, um, you know, working with scenes and stuff, the books tend to fall on one category or the other. And this one's a process book. Or another way of looking at it is there's the how you write and then there's the what you write. Yeah. I always felt with Bradbury that a lot of what's in the book may not be true. He yeah. is instinctively a good writer and he's trying to sort of understand how it is that he's a good writer. But none of the things that he's put in that book may necessarily help anybody else to become a writer like him. And I think some of the advice in there is very nebulous. And I was really struck listening to your podcast episodes with how some of it, you were kind of faced with suggestions of things which weren't suggestions. And you had to invent your own exercises. There was one in particular where you decided that the lesson to take from what Bradbury was saying is we must do some networking. So you did some networking. Can you tell me about that process, how, how you ended up at that position? Obviously, this is the chapter where he talks about all the wonderful things that fell in place for him to sell his first book and his first collection of short stories. And Renee, actually, in our um, show notes, put it all out as a, a list of the people you need to know, <laughs> the uh, mentor and the publisher and the lunch. Yeah, I, I turned them into tarot cards, actually, <laughs> and put them on the website. So yeah, like you need to have all these people and they kind of lead all the way down to other famous authors and philosophers. So we were looking at like, well, this is kind of a roadmap. Maybe not a roadmap for everyone, but of things. But if it's a successful roadmap that got one person into a publishing contract. It's a much better roadmap than somebody that hasn't right. published like Ray Bradbury. And so our initial idea was, well, maybe we could replicate some of these elements. Like maybe we could think about looking at editors or looking at public at um, uh, agents. And then we realized that that was way beyond anything we wanted to do for an exercise. We actually recorded the idea for what we were going to do. And we got done with it. And it's like, that's not going to work. We don't want to do this. <laughs> so he scaled back considerably. Part of his success was that he reached out to people. He networked and he didn't necessarily network in a, you know, will you be my agent? But even just, I'm a writer. I really enjoyed your your work and I wanted to reach out to you. So we decided to take ourselves out of our comfort zone and actually write to some of the writers and creators that we liked. Yeah. And do you think that paid off? Well, I don't think it paid off as far as our writing careers went, but... <laughs> <laughs> But it's a good mindset to have when you're reading something that there was an actual person behind it who struggled. And it helps when you're doing your own writing to remember that real people can write. 
And the other thing was for our own podcast, we need to do a lot of networking. Yeah, that's the thing. Writers is a solitary thing, right? You sit around and you write all day and you're alone. But then I got my MFA in creative writing and they're all like, you should network. It's like, well, do you even know how to network? These professors, the stuff that they did to get where they were is all outdated. It doesn't work anymore. But just telling us to network is not helpful, especially since a lot of us are like introverted. We emailed people that, you know, were either an inspiration to us or uh, we liked, you know, like I found someone in a magazine. Um, there's some literary magazines that I read and there's this poet. I was like, they're awesome. I don't care. I'm just going to email them a fan letter. <laughs> uh, can you kind of reply back? Mm-hmm. It's great when you do, though, isn't it? I once wrote, once and only once wrote to Bradbury and I didn't expect to get a reply. He was in his 90s. I can't remember what prompted me to write, but there was something that I'd found and I thought, I'll tell him this, but he probably won't read the letter. But he did. Um, it took about nine months and I was amazed. It must have been wow. very awesome. But there's loads of people who did contact him earlier in his life when he was a really active writer and public speaker. And nearly everybody who ever wrote to him will tell you the stories of the letters they got back from him. How on earth did he find time to write if he was writing letters all the time? But that was part of his networking. But he also obviously was involved in the science fiction field. And from the 1930s onwards, there was a really big science fiction community. People would read the magazines, they would send letters to the magazines, and the magazines would publish their full address. And so there was this expectation, really, that fans and authors would be one and the same. And Bradbury joined the Los Angeles Science Fiction Society, and so he was meeting people like Robert Heinlein. Before Bradbury was published, Heinlein was already a famous name. Um, and He had a house in this area. Heinlein's house is oh. uh, he had is actually um, a very short distance from my town that we live in, Santa Cruz, and he lived up in uh, Bonnie Dune. Oh, he was in Bonnie Dune? Of course mm-hmm. he was. Wow. But that's what people would do, you know, they they would have these sort of networks. Right, and they held the fanzines and stuff too back then yeah, as well. Yeah, that's right. And the borderline between writer and fan was really very paper thin. That leads me to another question that I've been pondering. Obviously, the book that you've been working through is 30 years old, but the events that Bradbury is talking about are from early in his career. So he's talking about stuff 50, 60 years back in the past, 70 years. So how does his advice work for you today, trying to uh, sort of learn how to write? Throughout the history of writers, we have always procrastinated. (laughs) And we've always felt like there wasn't enough time or we didn't have good ideas. These things don't change. (laughs) Especially with process, that is one thing that doesn't change too much. Whereas the books that focus on technique, those techniques change because styles change over time. Right. But process doesn't really change. We're all miserable over here behind our keyboards, just <laughs> bleeding all over them, right? Like, how do you get going? Well, later on in the book, his advice was not so great or not not that it wasn't great. It just wasn't helpful. But the first few chapters are really relevant. They're really good. 
He wrote a list of nouns, you know, like these things are clearly important or I wouldn't have written them down. And then he tried to like decode them, deconstruct them and figure out, well, why am I interested in this thing here? And he'd really like, he wrote a prose poem about it. We did that activity. It was fantastic. I mean, you got a really good story out of it. Start of the story. I still need to finish it, but yeah. Yeah. Like that was a really good one. This bits of advice are stuff that you get continually as a writer. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you should read every yeah. day. You should make time to write. But but that's kind of nebulous. So what's nice is when you find a writer that says, well, this is what I did read. Bradbury did a, or at least in this book, he claimed to have done a poem, a short story, and a like an essay or nonfiction piece every day. And that's actually, it's nice to have a checklist. Like, okay, this is exactly what I'm going to do. I'm not just going to read in general. I'm going to read these things that Bradbury read. Or the one that was really useful for me was his idea of going to the library and lock himself away from his family for the day to write for six hours. I I don't know about you, but I find if I go to somewhere where there are people like a cafe or or a, a library or somewhere like that, even if they're talking and making noise, I can still block it out and I can actually get work done. Whereas if I'm sitting in an office and there are people that I know, I kind of start eavesdropping on the conversations. Or people who know you. That's yeah. That's the distraction. Yeah. I actually tell students sometimes, depending on the library, it's the library is sometimes the loudest place on earth. Oh, yeah. Because everything makes noise. Yeah. And it, like somebody drops a pen and you hear it. The baby starts crying. You hear it. You can't unhear it. (laughs) The episode we did, we did these audio updates throughout the six hours. And I started in a cafe and she started in the library. So loud. Yeah, the cafe was pretty loud. It was pretty funny. And I used to love working in cafes back in the 90s. The cafe scene was just different. Now, I was really mad that the coffee was like five bucks. (laughs) Things change. Can you tell me something about your own backgrounds as writers? So what what brought you to this point where you thought you would look at these how-to-write books? Who goes first? (laughs) (laughs) Our, Our backgrounds as writers is that we both received formal training in a particular discipline of writing. So we've learn the benefit of actually sitting down in a class and having someone give you exercises and having and really focusing on your writing to improve it. Mm-hmm. But now we've both entered into areas that are different. So I was doing science journalism and now I'm writing, I'm writing a fantasy right now, but I'm writing fiction. My academic career was pretty much poetry. So my MFA is in poetry from San Francisco State. And so and did the whole creative writing thing. Everyone's like, should I get an MFA? I don't know, maybe. So I had like formal training in that kind of thing to publish in literary magazines and stuff like that. And I did, but then I started teaching. And I joined the adjunct life and I I recently left it. It was very brave of me, I think. But uh, I taught and taught and taught and it just kind of saps your creative energy. All those paper grading and and lectures and, (laughs) and department stuff. And so I realized that I had spent 10 years teaching and not writing after I graduated. And so when I came back to the writing, it actually wasn't poetry anymore. It became more of a memoir. So now I'm trying to teach myself how to write prose as opposed to poetry. Because all these disciplines have, you know, they all use words, but they use them differently and there's different things that go into it. So rather than try to reinvent 
this all. Why not make use of all these craft books? But the other problem is that then you end up buying craft books and not reading them. Yeah. Or, or maybe you end up just reading them and not doing any writing. I, for one, actually own like 53 craft books. I counted them. It's an addiction. And now we're actually going through them and realizing, yeah, you have to do the activities. Learning theory, the way we've got it going on in the podcast is actually conducive to really learning something. You're learning in a community, you're reading, you're discussing, you're applying. So it's like an integrated reading and writing approach, which is the optimal way to learn. The funny thing is that our backgrounds, while not being the best for the current writing we want to do, are actually fabulous for podcasting because Renee has all this information about teaching and learning and that sort of thing. And I was trained as a journalist, so I'm really good at asking questions. I actually did get podcast training as part of my program. We bring some interesting things to the table to do the podcasting to improve our writing. (laughs) We have different personalities. Obviously, you can kind of tell just hearing us talk. But we have a work ethic that is very similar. We really dig in and we probably do way more than we should. But that helps. As a podcaster, I I bet you sometimes wish there was somebody just like you to do half the work. (laughs) And we have that. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds perfect. When you're doing it, do you normally sit in the same room or are you normally in in different locations? Half and half. We like to do the discussions of the chapters in the same room, but then we'll usually use Zoom to go over the exercises. And have you built up a a kind of a a community of listeners now who are interacting with you? Yeah, we have one. Our our husbands had to join our writing group. We actually, through our writing, had certain small community, yeah, Yeah. our our critique partners and such. So we've had a lot of support from them and both emotional support and like, wow, that was actually a really good episode. We learned something. So we've been moving into that group. And then most recently, we went to a conference, a writing conference and did a bunch of networking there. And Renee's been rocking the LinkedIn networking. So we are in the process of getting more strangers coming to our podcast and turning them into a community. Oh, I have a question for you. So listening to our podcast, having read this book all the way through, did you learn anything from listening to us go through the book? On an episode by episode basis, yes, I did, because I wasn't following along in the book while I was listening. Mm. So you you would be talking about something and it would be something I'd forgotten was even in the book. I can't think of an example, but you would be discussing the merits of something that he'd said. And I would be thinking, oh, I don't remember that he said that. So yeah, in that sense, it, it brought things to me. But the thing that I most got from it was what I would call your agony in trying to turn this book into a kind of instruction manual when it it clearly isn't. But some of the chapters in there, I felt really sorry for you because (laughs) I was thinking, this chapter is about his book. It's not about writing. (laughs) And yet you still... We soldiered on. Yes, yes. Well, our our first book was even harder to get through. So Ray Bradbury was a breath of fresh air. Yeah. <laughs> that first guy, John Gardner, he's quite the character. So it felt like a nice break. Mm-hmm. But also notice that a lot of the episodes dealt with two chapters at once. So sometimes if there wasn't a lot of advice, like the haiku interview, there may not have been a lot of advice in it or stuff to riff off. We had two chapters to work from. They are very short. And one thing we did notice with these chapters that he's very, and you mentioned this on your podcast, I've listened to the poetic language that he uses a lot. He speaks in metaphor. 
And you have to read this book slow. It's small. It's a short little book, but there's a lot in it. You have to be prepared to really unpack those metaphors and analogies and really try to figure out like he's trying to explain an internal process in his mind. And that's hard to do. And his way of doing it is very poetic. And you just have to kind of decode that so you can kind of see where he's coming from. When you were reading it, were you conscious that this is um, this is famous writer telling you about what he does, as opposed to, um, I mean, I don't know who John Gardner is. Nobody does. No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Simply from listening to, to your podcast, I get the impression that if I picked up John Gardner's book, I wouldn't be conscious of him as an individual more that the book would feel that it is somehow authoritative. It's a bit like a teacher. You're, you're in a good lecture. You believe what the lecturer says to you, but you don't necessarily know anything about what their background is. Whereas with Bradbury, it's quite clear from the outset that this is famous author telling you how he became famous author. So how do you square the differences between Bradbury and Gardner in those terms? You know, for me, the fame wasn't a factor. Overall, it was the knowledge that I had read some of these books. So it wasn't so much the fame, but the knowledge that there was a real human behind them creating these books. Right. What I liked was knowing that he used these creative steps. He used these work discipline approaches to write these well-known books, but not so much well-known as really well-written books. Because you read some of Bradbury's books and you think, wow, wouldn't it be awesome to be able to write like that or to be able to dig into the, the subconscious or just reveal something the way he reveals it? He's a staple, right? I mean, we all read him. Um, I'm not sure what's going on in Britain, but in America, we most people read him in high school or middle school, depending on the school you're going to. And I did. I read him in high school. Everybody knows the name Ray Bradbury. Not everybody realizes he wrote a craft book about writing. He, he's just this huge name powerhouse. And what's great about the book is that he really tries to make it seem like a wonderful life and that everyone is included. I really appreciated that. Whereas John Gardner, he was like at the top of the ivory tower, right? He was the gatekeeper and he was just this really snobby teacher. He was a professor and he was just so full of himself. And it's funny, right? Because it's like, well, what have you written? And he had, he did write a few books, but his book is widely suggested. It's been suggested to me. I unfortunately suggested it to Kim. I was like, I mean, everyone's read it. I own it. You think everyone's read it. And then right. you realize they couldn't possibly have read this because they would have said something right. about this chapter. But when John Gardner wrote his book, there was not as many craft books out there at the time. Writers didn't have a lot of options in the sense of, well, how did somebody write? Well, people aren't necessarily writing about that kind of stuff yet. How did you arrive at the decision of doing Gardner first? Was it because you'd seen the book first? or We wanted something with a certain amount of name recognition of an author that had been was dead, preferably <laughs> dead for a while, because we didn't want anything where we stirred up any particular controversy besides <laughs> it was just much more convenient. And so, yeah, we, we went for something that People kept telling us to read that we hadn't read. Right. I mean, if you look up, you know, what craft book should I read on Google? They list John Gardner's book. They will say, read The Art of Fiction. The person who wrote that list has not read The Art of Fiction. It's mentioned a lot. We thought this is the perfect book to start with because everyone tells you to read it. It's got some stuff at the very beginning that is, you know, the first chapter. Yeah. He starts off much stronger and the book peters off. Yeah. Reading Gardner 
really helped me specifically develop the kinds of notes I wanted to write about the book on the website. And otherwise, I got really snarky and I had a lot of fun, which was interesting because when we got to Bradbury, we loved Bradbury. (laughs) really liked him. He was like, he was like this uncle that was just so supportive all the times asking us at Thanksgiving dinner, how are we doing? And are we doing any projects? And I couldn't be snarky with him. I couldn't be mean. And so he kind of like evened me out. So now I'm kind of back on track with, I'm not just like being mean. I'm, I'm working with the advice, but I'm still being snarky a little bit. And did you choose him because he's dead? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, we did. That was kind of just a rule. It's like authors that are either well-known or the book is well-known, but also that the author is dead. Where we're beginning podcast, we didn't want to step on a lot of toes. Mm-hmm. There are actually several living authors whose books we want to do now, but part also is it's kind of fun to unearth something that's been around for a while and maybe has influenced a bunch of established authors now. I think what you're doing is absolutely terrific. It's one of those things that, because as you say, there are so many of these self-help books for writers, it could run and run and run forever. The one we're doing right now is a very technical, like how do you compose a scene to make it dynamic, to make people read the next one, to further strengthen your plot overall. But at some point we could jump over and do another process book. We could do if something that's writing nonfiction or writing screenplays or whatever. There's just, we can do something new every six months. Right. And, you know, so far I think the dynamic is technical book, process book, technique book, process book. And that also gives us a break too. So maybe the next book we choose will be more on process. When you did the Bradbury book, it was spread out over a number of podcast episodes. But as a listener, we don't know how long it took you to make those. Were you doing them like one a week or did you do the whole book in one concentrated go? How did it work? Because we do the exercise, each podcast takes two recordings and they have to be separated by a certain amount of time so we can go ahead and and practice it. And several of Bradbury's exercises were we were going to do a week of doing this or you know, we were going to schedule a day to do the writing marathon. So we took about two weeks to do each episode. And we don't usually read the chapters. We read them chapter by chapter. So we'd read two chapters and do the podcast and go about a week or so and then read the next chapter. So it is a a very authentic experience that you're presenting to the listeners. You're stopping to do the exercise. You're you're allowing time to pass when it needs to pass. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which other authors have you got lined up? We have stuff we want to do. I'm not sure which ones we're going to do next. Anne Lamott, probably. We definitely got to do Bird by Bird eventually. I mean, that's just a big book. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also this other one. My mother my mother was really into like some woo-woo stuff. And she really likes Julia Cameron's The Writer's Way. It's very popular. <laughs> there's also Writing Down the Bones. George Saunders, he wrote a fantastic one that's a summary of the class he teaches on Russian short stories. And that is amazing. What's the name of it? Something about uh, the pond. Short Swim in a Pond in the Rain. And then there is one by Zinsner. I used that one in my journalism class. One of these days, I've mentioned it, Kim rolls her eyes, but we're going to do Strunk and White, whether she likes it or not. <laughs> it's going to happen. <laughs> Maybe not this season. We are never doing the AP style guide, though. We're never no, doing- <laughs> no, we're not doing the AP style guide, but we should do Strunk and White. <laughs> But the thing is that there's different aspects to them. Like the bird by bird is this one that's fantastic for helping people get through writing blocks. But I think we need to recruit a couple of people to be our guinea pigs for that one. 
to find someone that truly is stuck with mm-hmm. their writing to see if these things push them to becoming a regular writer again. So I, the, this is the journalism background, which is that you have your topic, but then you have to figure out exactly what makes the story interesting. And each of these books have different elements. I think we want to bring in some more people at some point or, or figure out other ways to do them. So it's not, will vary based on the book that we have. Yeah. I know that Anne Lamont also has a lot of process in her book. And I think that they focus on different things. She gives different techniques than he gives. But what they both bring to the page is the feeling of being a writer, both the euphoria and the not so great parts and the daily work that you have to do. And so I think that successful writers who write process books are going to have a lot of the same beats emotionally just because this is what every writer goes through. Yeah, if you're if you're going to write a process book, you're going to do it because you're cheerleading. You're trying to be a cheerleader for the reader because they they clearly need some help getting their butt in the chair. Or perhaps you're writing it for yourself. <laughs> you're writing it for yourself, yeah. <laughs> Remember, if you do this work, you will be successful. Right. I teach screenwriting and Over the years, I've used various books with my students, and I've reached the point where I now say to them, there are so many rules about what works and what doesn't work, and they all contradict each other. Um, At the end of the day, you've just got to write and be good at it. But what you can do along the way, you can find things which support you as a writer. So in my lessons, I'm going to give you things that I find useful. If you find them useful, grab them. If I give you something and you don't understand it or you don't like it or it doesn't work, throw it away. So you just keep the things that work for you. I find that I get better work from students when they're given that kind of freedom rather than if I give them a textbook and say, this is the text that we're working from. That's very similar to parenting manuals too. (laughs) Oh, right. <laughs> just keep picking one till you find one that you like and go with it. From from one teacher to another, I think it sounds like you're a very supportive teacher. I, I think I would have enjoyed taking your class. <laughs> <laughs> one of my questions is whether you think the book has had a lasting impression on you or whether you think it will have had a lasting impression. So Bradbury's book. I think some of his stuff I still use and I still like. And in fact, One of the things that I still do from one of the activities we did was read a poem, a short story, and a piece of nonfiction a day. And I take the lesson a little, one step further. I try to find one line that's worth keeping from each one of them. And so I have a little book and I write the line. And sometimes if I'm feeling uninspired, I can read it. So that wasn't his advice, but it was just something that came out of it. And you know what? I love it because it's like me time. Nobody can bother me while I'm reading. And I've set time aside to do this reading. And then I'm never thinking, oh, God, it's been forever since I've read anything and I need to read in order to write well. So I think that advice is going to keep going on through my life and his energy. I don't think I will ever forget the energy he brought to the prose. I mean, words like gusto, (laughs) just write like a lizard. You know, you can't forget that. I don't know, Cam, what about you? I think that it is a real inspiration to me about how if you commit yourself to writing every day and taking it seriously and just opening yourself up to your experiences and incorporating your writing that you will be successful in the end. And I will definitely take his, take yourself to a library away from everybody else and just write 
advice. I've used that several times and I plan to use it again several times because just like Renee says, it's her me time. For me, it's like, I'm going to the library and leaving everyone in the house to take care of themselves for a while. <laughs> We're also planning a, a writing retreat later on this year, which will be another leave everybody behind and go and write. But also what was a real inspiration to me was how honest and enthusiastic he was how he reached into himself to find stories to write. And he had a personal connection with them. And it wasn't just he's going to go for something commercial or he's going to go for something that you know everybody else is writing, but that because he was his authentic self when he was writing, that when people discovered his work, they were hooked. When you're writing and you're not published and you're wondering if anyone's going to like your stuff besides your immediate family, your critique group, it feels good to know that if you're writing something that's true to yourself, that when somebody discovers you and likes you, they will really like you. Some of that advice works if you are a good writer. <laughs> you know, write a short story every day and you'll, you'll end up with some good ones. I don't know if that's true for everybody. I think there are some people who are so bad at writing that even if they did write a new story every day, they still wouldn't produce a good one. It's Obviously, it worked for Bradbury, but... Well, th there's two ways of looking at it, and they're both very you know positive ways. One of them is that if you were to commit to that kind of writing, maybe you still wouldn't be a good short story writer, but you'd be a better writer overall, no matter what. I mean, you would work certain bad writing habits out. So if nothing else, a person that committed to that could probably write a decent email. Like you get an email from someone who can write versus someone who can't write, There's there's a big difference there. And the other way of looking at it is that I don't actually believe you need to be a fantastic writer to be a published writer. I think that grit and determination and doing it every day actually goes a long ways to being a published writer or a writer that has a following. So if you can commit to that schedule, you, you might not be a reader that I want to read, but you'll probably become a reader that somebody wants to read. From teaching developmental courses with students, like I, I teach at a community college. Um, I've taught at various community colleges. I was a community college student. And in fact, I didn't even finish high school. I dropped out of high school. And if you read 18-year-old Renee poetry, it was awful. It was just horrible crap. And so in, in, in many ways, I am completely flabbergasted that the 18-year-old Renee poet ended up getting an MFA in her late 20s, early 30s. The difference <laughs> in the writing is insane. And so, yeah, it's easy to say, well, if they're not good writers, I would agree with Bradbury. One of his pieces of advice was quantity. Quantity is more important than quality at first, because the more you do it, the better you get. Yeah. The, the key, I think, is to not write in a vacuum. People not getting any outside help. I get a lot of students, well, what can I do to improve my work? It's like, have you tried taking a creative writing class? Have you tried joining a writing group? But if you're only writing for just yourself, you end up being 18-year-old Renee who writes really, really bad poetry. But then as I went through the system, I got better. My husband did an art degree and one of his professors said, an amateur practices until they get it right, professional practices until they don't get it wrong. When I was in my MFA program, the piece of advice that stuck with me the most was, it's not the most talented writers that make it because if it gets a little hard, they quit because it's not easy. The ones that make it are the ones that just don't stop. They have to reach for it. They have to work for it, but they don't quit. And those are the ones who we read. Do you think working through these various books is uh, pushing you into different areas of writing that you wouldn't otherwise have gone into? Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, definitely. Even if the content's the same, the type of writing we're putting into it is different. Yeah. I mean, we just did a, we just workshopped, uh, we did an activity where we workshopped a scene that we revised for Jack Bickham's scene and structure. And he, he bullet points, like his style is very, do this, do this, do this. Don't break the rules. (laughs) And it completely like kind of transformed my whole idea about how a scene is structured. It was very technical and it's like, I've never written like this. And with Bradbury specifically, it gave me a picture as to, you know, about Broadbury with a capital B. He was so prolific. He wrote so much stuff. Like the trove that he left behind is is immense. And then you're like, he wrote six hours a day. That's what he said. And then you're like, I don't know if I'd always trust anybody who said that. It's like, oh, come on. Do you really? He had to have. He had to have written (laughs) that much to leave behind, as much as he left behind. Is there going to come a point, do you think, where you're going to want to push all of these books to one side and say, I need time to do my thing? Well, that's another reason why we don't do a weekly podcast. Right. One of the goals of the podcast is to get us to read the books to become better writers. So if we're not actively writing at the same time, then... We will be producing a great resource to other people that want to write, but still, our one of our primary audiences is ourselves. Yeah, this gets us to learn. We're doing it one chapter at a time. That's not too bad. We'll be texting. Kim will text me back and say, I'm on a writing roll. Like, she's writing, and I'm like, I'm not going to text her for four hours. I'm going to leave her alone because she's doing her work. And same with me. It's like, today on Tuesday, it's all writing and she'll leave me alone. So we both have something to write that we have to get done. It's our project that we're working on. The podcast supports that. We're the accountability buddies. We are the accountability. We will also ask, how is that memoir going, Renee? (laughs) Yeah, we start each podcast with what words have we written? Yes. And then that's when... The reality hits us like, oh, God, we have to admit, hi, I'm Renee and I'm a procrastinator, you know. <laughs> what about rewriting? I don't know if Bradbury talks much about re- Well, actually, I, d- I know he does talk about rewriting a little bit. But do any of the other books talk about the necessity to get a draft out and then to rework it because the work only gets good in rewriting? We haven't come to a point where we've specifically gone through a how you rewrite your piece. But it's up there. I mean, the the main bits of advice are, you know, you have to read other people's work. You have to write every day and then you have to rewrite it until it's publishable. You're never going to get away from that. Right now, because of NaNoWriMo, right now, the advice is barf the book out and then go back and just completely rewrite it. And I think that's great advice, but it's not going to work for, like you said at the beginning, it's not going to work for everybody. That's not necessarily how... I do it. Maybe I should. I'm kind of meticulous. I'm I'm a big rewriter. And so people give me advice. I will find a way to take that advice and I will restructure the heck out of it until it works. The most recent book we're doing, Jack Bickham's Scene and Structure, he does have checklists for making sure. So that would technically be revision, I would say, because you'd have to write it, but then what would you need a checklist for? But maybe we should think about that in a future book. Do they have a couple chapters on revision? Mm Mm-hmm. You, you came very close to a Bradbury phrase when you talked about barfing up the book. <laughs> his, his phrase was throw up in the morning and clean up at noon. <laughs> <laughs> On a smelly house. Yeah. Yeah. That's poor wife. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Is there anything else that you would like to say to, to all these Bradbury fans out there who are listening to us? On a very practical level, if you're reading this book and you're a writer and you want advice, read the first four or five chapters and then skip to the last chapter. It's not that the other stuff aren't interesting, but if you're not like a hardcore Bradbury fan, introductions to his books aren't necessarily going to be very helpful. What's your favorite craft book? There's a book by Claudia Hunter-Johnson called Crafting Short Screenplays. Mm -hmm. That's one of my favorite advice books for writing because she doesn't talk about nuts and bolts of things. She gets to the heart of what she thinks all stories is about. And she thinks it's not conflict, it's connection. Oh, All stories are about characters who make connections or break connections. And the minute you've got that idea as that's what stories are, it becomes really easy to tell a story. Whereas if somebody says, oh, you've got to write about conflict, you then, well, I've got a character, I've got another character. How do I make conflict? It, it's really difficult. But if you think in terms of making connections or breaking connections, it, it just seems easy. You don't have to follow her advice just for screenplays. I mean, she's doing it to encourage people to write short films, but you could equally apply it to uh, short stories as well. I feel like I want to read that book now. <laughs> we'll put it on the list. I think you should. <laughs> Good. That advice is very similar to something I read in Janet Burroway's book. I think it was imaginative writing. It covers all of the genres. It's got creative nonfiction in there, and it's, it's a great book to start in a creative writing class. Well, thank you for, for joining me for this. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Your podcast really complements his career and the fact that you reached out to so many people and had so many different aspects. I think it's a really fantastic addition you have made to the scholarly aspect. Well, thank you. And the nerd in me loves your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> My thanks once again to Kim and Renee of Words to Write By. That's Kim Smuga Otto and Renee Nelson. And I'll put a link to their podcast in the show notes. And of course, you can find those show notes on my website, which is bradburymedia.co.uk. I've got more episodes of Bradbury 100 coming soon, so please stick around and join me next time for Bradbury 100. If you've been enjoying the podcast, I'd appreciate it if you could give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe using your podcast app. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and all good podcast places. And please also check out my YouTube series, Bradbury 101, and my other audio podcast, Science Fiction 101. For information on all of these, head to bradburymedia.co.uk.